I'll be reading this morning from 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 10 to the end of the chapter. 1 John 3.10. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who is of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. And the one who keeps His commandments abides in Him and he in him, and we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit which he has given us. I'll pray. God, again, just thank you for all that you've given us in your word, for the revelation that you've made of yourself, of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for your will for us, your ways. And also, God, just that what it means to, to be in fellowship with you. And we know that's why you've written this book, that we might have fellowship with you and with each other. And I pray, God, that we just be drawn to that. And we would have, by your Spirit's leading and teaching us, clarity. And um, that we would, would come to you, God, and, and walk in the truth with you. And, and enjoy that fellowship, God, that you have saved us for. In Christ's name, amen. You be seated. Well, we're at another point here in John where um, all these one-syllable words um, that should be so simple and clear are anything but. Make some very profound statements here and sometimes hard to get our heads around. Um, so it's an important passage to look at. The emphasis here in this passage is, is um, one of those three tests of, um, of fellowshipping with God, and that is in this one, it is coming back around to that test of we will love one another if we are walking in fellowship with him. We will live righteous lives. We will walk in the truth and we will love one another. The three things that become tests of, uh, or evidences of really walking in fellowship with the Lord. And so this passage begins actually in the middle of verse 10 of chapter 3. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And once again, as I noted last week, with all these other um, occurrences of the word practice, 
It's not actually there in the Greek. It's simply the, the Greek word poel, which is to do. And sometimes it's translated do or does or doing, sometimes commit, the one who commits evil. Um, but it's not in any sense related to continually or habitually or practice. Those are all inferences that the translators have put into the text. And so literally, it would be anyone who doesn't do righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And the two parts of that sentence are identical in the Greek. It, 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 they're written out the same. The one who does not do righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. This is not a statement about salvation. Um, this is not an evidence for salvation. It's a, it's, a, it's a point of what is the source of our life. So I don't like necessarily starting out sermons by quoting from other people. I did that last week, and I'm going to do it again. Uh, hopefully it won't become a habit. But I appreciate how this author puts it. So on this phrase, anyone who does not do what is right is not of God. As he says here again in verse, anyone who does not do righteousness is not of God. Well, that sounds like a statement saying you're not a Christian if you don't do righteousness. And so this author says on this, the Greek expression for of God um, need mean no more than that a person so described does not find the source of his actions in God. He is not of God in what he does. A failure to perform righteousness and a failure to love one's brother can never be traced to God. That is his point. If you're, not, if you're failing to perform righteousness, if you're failing to love your brother, don't blame it on God. That doesn't come from God. And then in another place, a similar um, statement where he, the author says, Here John affirms that what is true that what is true of whoever does not do righteousness is true also of whoever does not love his brother. In both cases, the person is not of God in the sense that God is not behind what he is doing. As was the case with the phrase of the devil in verse 8, it is wrong to take the phrase not of God as though it meant not born of God. The NIV rendering... Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, paraphrases the text and misinterprets it at the same time. There is nothing in this text about not being a child of God. How could there be? One must be a child of God before one can hate his brother, which is where this passage is going. An unsaved person has no Christian brother to hate. So this is addressed to Christians it is not a statement saying you can't be saved if you hate your brother or if you don't love your brother, if you're not practicing righteousness and doing righteousness. It is simply saying it's not of God. Well, where is John coming from with this? Okay, here's where I need to kind of think back through the rest of Scripture. Remember in John 15, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And nothing means nothing. I always like thinking when I hear that word of what C.S. Lewis said, nothing is what rocks think about. Nothing means nothing. We can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. That means righteousness and that means love. And so when there is an absence of righteousness or an absence of love, God is not involved with that. Every good thing comes from God. 
And as we abide in him, he manifests his life through us in righteousness and in love. We also know, and for this you can flip back in your Bible to Romans 8, that Paul uses um, the same, makes reference to the same concept, but just using slightly different words. In Romans chapter 8, speaking about the, the Christian who is living according to the flesh and a Christian who is living according to the Spirit. So Paul doesn't say not of God. He says living according to the flesh or according to the Spirit. So he says here some very straightforward statements, beginning in verse 5 of Romans 8. For those who are according to the flesh... And that's an unbeliever. Those who are, according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are, according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So are means being. If you are according to the flesh, you are an unbeliever. If you are according to the Spirit, you are a Christian. And then he's going to continue on. And then just moving down, he says, verse 9, However, you, a Christian, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And this is where I want to come down to. Look at verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because we're not, we are not, um, are not according to the flesh. But a person who is not according to the flesh, because he's according to the Spirit, a Christian, can live according to the flesh. So you can be in Christ, in the Spirit, Christ can be in you, and you can live like you're not. You can live according to the flesh. That's all Paul's saying here. So if you are living according to the flesh, verse 13, you must die. And he doesn't mean your life is going to come to an end immediately, because we all know that's not true. All of us live according to the flesh on occasion, some of us more often than others, that's where you can talk to your wife and get a good assessment of how often that's taking place. But every Christian will, at different times of his life, moments of his life, throughout a day, live according to the flesh. And in every moment that we live according to the flesh, we cannot experience what is true of the Spirit. Life. He says when you live according to the Spirit, you are going to experience life and peace, because that is the nature of the Spirit. Life and peace. And when we live according to the flesh, we're going to experience what is true of the flesh, death. And so this is the same language that John's going to be picking up. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So it's, it's not really that complicated. Every person, every Christian is living from one of two sources. In any given moment, I'm either living from Jesus Christ or I'm living from myself. When Paul uses the phrase, according to the flesh, he's talking about humanity. He's not talking about a sin nature in particular. It is the exact same phrase that Paul uses in the very first chapter, in the opening verses of, of Romans, saying that Jesus Christ, according to the flesh, was the son of David. And as the same so he says, according to his humanity... And so we don't, because see, we think, well, I'm living according to my sin nature when I'm doing, you know, immorality or lying or cheating or stealing. Yeah, sin nature. But anything we do apart from Jesus Christ is according to the flesh. 
It's either from Christ or it's from you. There's no other options here. And so if I'm preaching and it's not in dependence upon Jesus Christ, then it is according to the flesh and it is death. Amen. See, this, and so this, is, this is where the spirit-filled life comes in. It's nothing, you know, mysterious and, you know, and, and weird. It's, it's simply living in dependence upon Jesus as Jesus lived in dependence upon the Father. If I'm not doing that, conscious dependence, not conscious awareness of his presence, but conscious dependence upon Christ. If I am not living from Christ, then the source of my activity is me, not God. And the result will always be death, no matter how good the intentions are. And we've all seen this. You can have the best of intentions, and it just blows up in your face, right? And many times it's because our good intentions are not from God. We haven't listened to him. We haven't waited on him. We're doing what we believe God wants us to do, like Abraham producing Ishmael. Good intentions. And God had nothing to do with it. And Ishmael is a consequence of Abraham's humanity. Abraham living according to the flesh and had nothing to do with the Spirit of God. And we're still dealing with that today. Ishmael was a picture of what happens when you operate according to your own humanity rather than in accordance, to dependent, in, in, in accordance with the Spirit in dependence upon Christ. So that's all John is saying here. There's one of two sources. And if, and if I'm seeing a lack of love in my life, if I'm seeing a, a, an absence of righteousness in my life, don't think God is behind that. We are behind that, not God. I'm going to be a, maybe, this may be my last sermon after making this cross-reference, but look at Malachi with me, chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. And I appreciate the way the New American Standard translates this. I think it gets to the heart of it. <coughs> This is that passage in Malachi about divorce. And it pertains to what we're talking about here, as you'll see. Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason? For what reason is God not accepting our sacrifices? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Now, so he's speaking, how have I, what, what is dealing treacherously against the wife of your youth? Divorce. Now look at verse 15. But no one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. In other words, God is not involved with divorce. But I, I mean, how many times we hear people say, God led me to this, this is what God wanted me to do. And he says very clearly here, no one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. He's not saying a Christian can't get a divorce. But he is saying God doesn't divorce. And so when you or I get a divorce, it isn't God leading us to that. In the same way we could say the Scripture says God doesn't lie. And so if you or I lie, don't say God led us to that. <laughs> 
I've made reference to this before. I appreciate it that it came out in print. Back in the, in the 70s, one of those early Christian books that came out was called God Smuggler. And it was about this individual called Brother Andrew <coughs> who was smuggling Bibles behind the Iron Curtain in his little Volkswagen bug. Amazing book. But in it, the statement is made that he would, would not only hide Bibles, but he would lie to border crossing guards when they asked him, do you have, point blank, do you have Bibles in your car? And the book said he would look at them and say, I do not have Bibles in my car. And they would let him through. So he would lie. And for many years, people have used that example of Brother Andrew of how sometimes it is okay to lie. Or they'll point to Rahab the harlot. When, they, when the men came to her apartment there on the city wall and said, did those spies come in here? Oh, yeah, they came in, but they left. She lied. And for many years, people have pointed to Rahab the harlot and said, there you go. You can lie and be in the will of God. Both are bad examples. Brother Andrew, many years later, decades later, did an interview with the magazine Christianity Today. And the interviewer asked him, what about this that you used to lie when you were taking Bibles behind the Iron Curtain? And he said, the book was wrong. And I'm thankful that I can finally publicly in print correct what the author said. We never lied because God doesn't lie. And so how can we be in the will of God and be doing the very thing that God himself would never do? And he said, we have people that are, that are sitting in prison today for smuggling Christian literature into China because they refused to lie about what they were doing. We will, are prepared to take the consequences for our righteous acts. And we will not lie in the name of Jesus because Jesus doesn't lie. Hallelujah. He says, we'll break the law because some of men's laws are bad laws and they're in violation of God's nature. And we'll break those laws on occasion. But we will not act contrary to God's nature, by lying. Rahab the harlot, she's never committed in Scripture for lying. She's commended for her faith, never for lying. If what we are doing is not true to God's nature, don't say it comes from God. That's where John's going with this passage. So let's go back to 1 John chapter 3. Again, the middle of verse 10, anyone who does not do righteousness is not of God. His, he's not living from God, nor the one who does not <coughs> love his brother. For this reason, for, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is what Jesus told us to do. This is the new commandment that I've given you, that you love one another, even as I've loved you. So how does that, what does that look like? So, well, John says, well, I can tell you what it doesn't look like before I tell you what it does look like. It doesn't look like Cain. Why would he even bring that up? Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, I want to be careful here because I don't want to put Cain in heaven. But neither do I want to put him in hell. Because I don't know where Cain is. None of us do. And I don't think there's anything in the Bible that says where he is, including this verse that says he was of the evil one. John's point is, is that when he, 
was angry with his brother and killed his brother, he was not acting from God. And in that act of murder, he was acting from the evil one. That's all he's saying. So go back and look at Genesis chapter 4 with me briefly. And you see if you get any sense whether this man is an unbeliever or not. Disobedient, yep. We assume, we know. But it, it, I mean, there's, there's assumptions being made all through this. Genesis chapter 4. Now the man, Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to, a, to Cain. And, she, and Cain means the begotten. And she said, I have gotten a man-child, literally a man, the Lord. And what's going on here, and many, many um, writers agree, <coughs> is that Eve is saying, this is the Messiah. This is the one that God just said that through your seed, one will be born who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And she's going, this is the one. She had no idea it would be thousands of years later. And so she thought her firstborn child would be the God-man. So she looks at Cain and goes, this is the God-man. This is fully God, fully man that just came and he's going to crush the head of the evil one. That's what she's saying. So this is a statement of faith on Eve's part. Now, how long did that last? <laughs> Probably not very long. First time he spit his peas out all over the floor or something. You know, she's going, that can't be the God child. You know, because, I mean, you see sin in your child from very, very early age, right? So it must have just been a huge balloon burst on her part when she begins to see this little rascal be a little rascal, Right? But she believed when that child came out of her womb, this is the God-man. Verse 2, and again she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Any indication of their faith? Not, nope. They're just two different occupations, vocations. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. That's not a bad thing. It's just not what God wanted. But there's nothing wrong with the intention of his heart. How many unbelievers bring an offering to God? And so again, we know they do, but there's nothing here so far that indicates that this man is a hater of God, an unbeliever in God. We don't see it. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock. Cain brought the offerings of the fruit of the ground, best he could bring. And Abel brought from the flocks the best he could bring. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but, not, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. <coughs> so Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Here's another thing we don't know. How old were they when this took, when this took place? We don't know. We know Adam lived to be in his 900s. And so it's, it's possible that Cain also lived to be in his 900s. And maybe Cain and Abel were already 100 years old when this took place. They would have been like, you know, pre-teenagers at 100 years old. We don't know. But they were, they were, they, we don't know when this took place. But what, what I'm getting at is we don't know if there had been a, a life of relationship with God prior to killing his brother. It would seem to me that there had been. That both men were living with some kind of relationship with God prior to this incident. Perhaps for hundreds of years. We don't know. Verse 6, 
Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desires for you. But you must master it. This doesn't sound like language between God and a God-hating man. But it sounds like language between God and a friend. Hey, don't do this. He's trying, God's trying to pull him back from his sin. So Cain didn't listen. And Cain told Abel his brother. I'm sorry, and, and, and Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him because he was jealous. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now it's turning south in a hurry. He's killed his brother, and now he's lying to God. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Now, this is not repentance. It's not a confession of faith, but it is interesting what he says. He says, verse 14, Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. Wow. I don't know that we're going to see Cain in heaven. I've always doubted it. I've always just assumed we wouldn't. But I'm not so sure we're going to, that he's in hell. Maybe we'll see him in heaven. We don't know what took place before that offering. We don't know. Maybe he had truly placed his faith in the Lord prior to that offering where everything went south. It's interesting that that's the relationship that John picks up on. I wonder if John is not assuming Cain was lost that he would use the relationship between Cain and Abel here in the New Testament to say it's possible for Christian brothers to hate each other enough to want to kill each other. And that's true. Some Christians would like to think that you can't be a Christian and hate your brother like that. I'm thinking, did they never have any brothers? I mean, my older brother, I remember growing up, goodness gracious, four and a half years older than me, a lot bigger. You know, they always confused my older brother and my mom as being brothers and sister. And they looked at me as being, you know, maybe the offspring or some, you know, wayward kid they brought in off the street. I don't know. But, but there was huge, it just seemed like a huge difference between us. And my brother was not walking with the Lord for most of the time that I shared a bedroom with him. I remember at one point we had to share the same double bed. He didn't even allow me to move, literally. Even when I breathed, he'd say, stop breathing. (laughs) And so my parents finally got us separate beds, twin beds, and it didn't get any better. And I loved my brother. But at times I hated my brother. I really did. And I would plot acts of vengeance on my brother. How to get even with my brother. And some of my happiest memories in life are when I got even with him. <laughs> That's not a good thing. So going back to the text here, I, I feel like I've got some understanding of what John is saying. He says, 
Verse 12, not as Cain, who was of the evil one. Again, that's not necessarily a reference to his, his spiritual um, aptitude or, or, or his spiritual identity. It's simply that he was of the evil one in slaying his brother. That's not of God. <coughs> and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Jealousy. Can Christian brothers be jealous of each other? Absolutely. Is that jealousy the root of murder? Absolutely. And maybe they'd never actually physically harm that brother, but if the jealousy is in his heart, if he hasn't already committed murder, he's pretty close to it. And that's the point that John's making. We are to love one another. You can't claim love for one another and have jealousy in your heart for each other. Why isn't God giving me what he's given that other guy? How come, you know, and we can just how come, how come all day long? I'm not any better, worse than that person. How come my life is worse than that person? And that jealousy becomes the root of a murderous heart. It's not love. Verse 13, do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. Again, I think there's, a, this is, there's, no, there's no just strict division here between verse 12 and 13. When Cain killed his brother, it was the spirit of the world. He was not identifying with his brother. He was not compassionate toward his brother. He was not understanding of his brother. His brother was the enemy because his brother was acceptable in what he did and Cain was not. And that is the spirit of the world. And sometimes when you have a Christian brother that hates you, it's the world that's hating you because the world's gotten a hold of your brother. It's not the Lord. He may be a Christian. It isn't the Lord that's hating you. It's the world in your brother that's hating you. So don't marvel if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren, even those who hate us. Love is supernatural. You can't, from your own gener self, generate love. You can't generate righteousness. Try it. You can't do it. And when we see that it's impossible for us to generate love for another person, it can be a brother a sister, a roommate, a spouse, and we go, it's hopeless. That's when we break the relationship. It's hopeless. Just give up. Walk away. It's impossible. It may not be possible to have fellowship, because again, it takes two to have fellowship. But it's never impossible to love somebody. In our own strength, yes. Because apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. But in Christ, it is possible to love anybody. Truly love them from the heart, with an open heart, a generous heart, as he's going to talk about in these next verses. And we know that the life of Christ is being manifest in us and through us. When we find ourselves 
in a way that's not self-generated. We aren't just trying to just screw it up and get, us, get it out of us somehow of love. But it just happens. And we can, it's almost like an out-of-body experience. You look, out, you look at yourself and go, I can't believe that I actually love that person. Because they're a stinker. And yet my heart loves them. Forgiving them is not even an issue. Because I love them. They don't have to ask for an apology or anything. They don't have to ask for forgiveness if there's such a thing as a distinction. I love them. And it's just supernatural. And it comes from Christ. God is love. John's going to tell us in this very epistle. And if we're living in Christ, from Christ, abiding in Christ, then he's the one who does it, or it's not going to get done. Any person that you love, hopefully, it's because of Christ that you're living from, and not just because you're responding to the way that they've treated you, they've been nice, or you try to respond to common interest. We all like each other because we are, are so, so similar to each other, but we love each other. And it's because of Jesus. It's one of the things that I've been so ministered to personally at being at His Hill over these years. It hasn't always been loving. Sometimes there's been a very marked absence of love. But for the most part, especially in recent years, I'm amazed, just amazed at the love among the student body and, and on the part of the staff toward each other and, and toward the students. Because occasionally the Lord allows a person to come into our community from year to year that is not necessarily easy to love. They might have physical challenges where they need a lot of assistance. They might have mental challenges, deficiencies, where they need a lot of assistance. Sometimes it might be a person who, um, who and there's, again, there's no, I'm, I'm not being critical, but we've had a few students that have, that have been on that autistic um, spectrum, and, um, and they, social behavior is, is, is not easy for them. And they can laugh at the wrong time, speak at the wrong time. And, and the students, on, have been, there have been occasions where they haven't even known that this person is autistic. And yet the love that they've shown, the grace, the understanding, the acceptance, without even knowing the particulars of what's going on in the person's life. And I just go, this is supernatural. Because I remember what high school was like. <laughs> and you, might, you just remember how vicious people can be. And when you're around people that aren't vicious toward each other, but they truly care for each other, you're going, this isn't because of them. This is because of Jesus. We know we have passed out of death into life. Remember Paul's language, we are walking according to the Spirit. We know we're walking according to the Spirit. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. It's God's doing. He who does not love abides in death. He doesn't say he's not saved. He says he's not living in Christ. He's not living from Christ. And so what's he going to experience? He's going to experience the only thing the flesh, humanity can produce apart from Christ, death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That sounds a whole lot like Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Well, Charlie, how can you say that's not speaking of an unbeliever? 
because Christians can murder each other. In 1 John, I think it's chapter 4, verse 10. I've got it in my notes somewhere. 1 John 4, 15. 1 Peter 4, 15. Peter says, let none of you suffer as a murderer. It is possible for Christians to be guilty of murder. John's point is simply, if you were to murder somebody in your heart or with your hands, Jesus had nothing to do with it. No murder has eternal life. Jesus is eternal life, abiding in him, controlling him, influencing him. The source of the murder wasn't Jesus. And this is extreme, but again, we could say the source of your worry isn't Jesus. The source of your anxiety isn't Jesus. The source of your irritability isn't Jesus. Don't spiritualize it. And don't minimize it and say, well, it's just not even sin. It is sin, and Jesus isn't the source of it. That's what John's saying. And then he's going to start getting positive about what love is. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. (coughs) Well, that's easy to say. And I like to think, you know, as a, as a manly dad and husband, that, you know, if the bad guy came breaking the door down, I would jump up and play the hero. I might run for the, back, for the other door. I don't know. I've never had a bad guy come breaking the door down. I'd like to think that I would stand in front of my wife and children and I'd take the bullet. I hope I would. I don't know. I remember the time that I walked into, I was in a lady's house and for a Bible study with a bunch of youth, and, um, and she insisted that I go see the cat that had just had kittens. I don't care for cats and kittens. Even back in high school, maybe this is where it began, but she insisted because I was the only kid in the house of about 30 or 40 kids who hadn't gone back and seen the cat. So I said, she dragged me down the hallway to see the cat. And so she opened up the bedroom door, the cat's right against the wall, kittens all around her, and it was like, that's one person too many. And the cat went possessed. Couldn't believe it. That cat just came screaming across the room and just threw itself in the air and lunged itself right at me. So what did I do? I grabbed that little 90-pound woman, and I pulled her in front of me. And I had her arms pinned to her side because I'm grabbing, and I'm hiding behind, you know, this, and I, you know, I could have, you know, I'm a big weight lifter at the time, you know, I could have, I could have lifted the woman above my head easy, but I've got her in front of me. And that cat is just ripping her up, just ripped me, and she's screaming, and the cat's screaming, and I'm just going, I'm safe. Total cowardice. And the husband came running down the hallway, grabbed that cat in the middle of the air, threw it back into the room, and closed the door. And I'm thinking, I'll never come back to this house again. I thought I was brave until that moment. It is easy to say we in our lives for the brethren. Easy to say. How do we do with putting other people ahead of ourselves daily? How do we do with the daily dying to self? 
I know I don't do very good. How do we do with being overlooked when our brother gets the promotion and we don't? And we deserve it maybe even more than he does. When everybody regards one person higher than they regard us and we never get the attention. It's the daily dying for others. Oh, I would give my life for you. But don't ask me to let you have first place. So he gets practical. Verse 17. Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You'd lay down your life for your brother. But you can see a physical, practical need that your brother has, and you could meet it. And you don't. You say you love him, but you wouldn't lift a finger to help him. How does the love of God abide in him? Again, God's love isn't ruling. He isn't living from Christ. Because this is just the natural outflow of the Christian life when Jesus is being manifest in us and through us. You don't have to choose generosity, compassion, kindness, empathy. It just comes out of you because we're living from Christ. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Words are cheap. And we shall know by this, if we're living in loving, in deed, in truth, we'll know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him. This is not assurance that we are saved. It's assurance that we are abiding in Christ. The assurance that we are saved is simply Jesus. Not what we've done, but Jesus, who he is and what he has done. I don't take any assurance of my salvation over how I am living or am not living. Man, that's a terrible road to go down. Oh, I must be saved because I'm living a Christian life today. Oh, I must not be saved because I'm not living a life that's true of Christ today. Who wants to live that way? The assurance of our salvation is that Christ has said, all those who believe upon him for salvation shall be saved. They are given eternal life. Nothing can take it away. But the evidence or assurance that I am living in an abiding relationship with him is that what is only true of him, righteousness, truth, and love, is manifest through my life. And that tells me Christ is in me. Because I'm not the source of this. Christ is the source of it. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart, praise God, and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. You can't keep his commandments and do what is pleasing in his sight unless you are abiding in Christ. Your prayers will not be answered unless you are abiding in Christ. Everything in John, in 1 John is coming back to abiding. So very quickly, two more cross-references. Look over to John chapter 15. 
And I believe that John had this chapter, this passage in mind when he says that, that when we, we can ask whatever we wish and it shall be done. How does he put it? Um, whatever we ask, we shall receive from him because we keep his commandments. Okay? Now in John chapter 15, Jesus says, um, looking at verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. So what's the condition to seeing our prayers answered. If you abide in me, abide in me. Again, even answered prayer is an outflow of living from Christ. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. The fruit of what? Answered prayer. So John says... Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments. Well, one of His commandments is to abide in Him. And it's as we abide, we can keep His commandments. Really? Yes. Look at Ezekiel 36. You can't even obey apart from the Spirit of God. So every time John's saying, obey, keep the commandments, you can't even do that unless you're abiding. So John 36, beginning in verse 25, this is the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my, my ordinances. So one of the four things that happens when we place our faith in Christ is that the Spirit of God is given to us and the Spirit of God causes us to be obedient. So when John says, be obedient, keep the commandments, he's also saying you can't do it apart from the Spirit of God. Abide in Christ and the life of Christ is manifest through us, even in obedience. Whatever you ask, we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight, because we live in in an abiding relationship. And this is the commandment, now singular, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, and they're never to be separated. Believing in Jesus, loving one another, are not meant to be separated. One commandment. And the one who keeps his commandment abides in him, and he in him, and we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit which he has given us. So let me just wrap this up by making a summary of what are some loaded verses here. The one born of God is manifested through righteousness as opposed to sin. How do you manifest the fact that you're a Christian, that Christ is in you? Righteousness. And righteousness (coughs) is expressed in Christ-like practical love for the brethren, which gives our hearts confidence before God that we are abiding in Him and He in us. And as we abide, we can confidently ask and receive from Him. Let me just do that again. The one who is born of God, that life in Christ is manifested through righteousness, and righteousness is expressed in Christ-like practical love for the brethren which gives our hearts confidence before God that we are abiding in Him and He in us 
And as we abide, we can confidently ask and receive from him. So let me just state this in another way. As we abide in Christ and he in us, we will manifest five things. As we abide in Christ and Christ in us, five things will be made known, manifest. One, his righteousness. Two, his love for the brethren. Three, an effective prayer life where our prayers are being answered. Four, obedience to his command to believe in Christ and to love one another. And fifth, and the presence of the indwelling spirit of God. All of those things will be manifest in our lives without us trying to do any of it. If we abide in Christ, his righteousness, his love, answered prayer, obedience to his command, and the presence of the indwelling spirit of God. It's a great life. And we're only living from one of two sources, ourselves or Jesus. And we live from Jesus. We walk in fellowship with him and have the opportunity to walk in fellowship with one another. And if we're not living from Jesus, anything can happen, including murdering one another. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you again for the simplicity of what you've said. I pray that it would be clear and simple and would result in us having a pure and simple devotion to Jesus. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. And I thank you, God, for all that you're willing to make known of yourself through a people who humble themselves, come before you in desperation, and say, in me there is no good thing, but that we abide in Christ, draw our very life from him, and live in that place of quiet dependence, even desperation upon Jesus. And I thank you, God. That's all you're looking for, is an empty vessel to fill. That your righteousness, your love, your very spirit would be manifest in and through each of us. In Christ's name, amen.